0: Well, good morning, Terranova. Uh, we're in this series on Proverbs, and today I, I want us, before the person who's coming up and preaches, preaches to consider something. W- without leaders being developed in a church, two things will happen. One, that church will fail to have a future. Two, we're not being biblical. We're not being obedient to the scriptures, which, which say the things that, that we have and learn we're supposed to teach to, to other faithful men so that the church can continue generation to generation. That's been a priority here at Terra from the time we started and we've been really blessed. God has met us in that and constantly given us a supply of young men who are looking towards ministry who get involved in the internship or residency programs. Um, so today, Taylor Philippi is going to be preaching. Taylor's a graduate of Valley Forge Christian College and teaches at Loudonville Christian School. He's, he's been a pastoral intern here for about two years. He's been attending here and been very faithful and involved throughout this process. Uh, he's a guy who has a, a, a godliness about him and especially displayed in his love for teaching and his continuous ability to serve no matter what he's asked to do. So he's going to teach on humility. I was going to, but I'm too good at it. People couldn't follow me on that one. So at this point, I'm, I'm going to introduce and ask to have you welcome and have come up Taylor Philippi. Well, uh, good morning, everybody.
1: Uh, we're going to continue in our series in Proverbs, as Ed mentioned, and specifically looking at humility. Uh, I first want to say that as I, as I did my study and research and read the scriptures on this topic, I saw Christ's humble nature displayed in the scriptures, but I was also really exposed and convicted of the pride in my own heart. And, and so I want to say that by no means am I... Uh, a, a totally humble person and i and i 'd rather speak to you as one who is pursuing humility and speaking to others who are along this path with me um, so let 's just start uh, by opening in prayer Lord as we study your word I just ask that you give us uh, open hearts to uh, to hear what you're saying and i I know that my words have no power in and of themselves, but I pray that your spirit would come now and, and and move in our hearts and reveal truth to us and guide us in your way. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be looking at some scriptures. So if you want to put your hand up and somebody in the back will come forth and be able to give you a Bible. If you don't have one, feel free to keep this one. Uh, it's our gift to you. Take it, read it. Um, so what I want to start out doing is just kind of paving the road and giving you a roadmap of what will be talking about today. So we're first going to start and look at that it's not in our first nature to be humble. And we're going to move on from there and ask two big questions, one of which is, what is pride? Uh, to answer that, we'll see where does pride come from, we'll define it, we'll see the results of pride, and we'll see that at times we can be blind to our own pride. And that will, that will answer the question, what is pride? We'll then move on to the other big question, what is humility? We'll define that, see what it begins with, see what posture one has to have in order to be humble. We'll see that it's only enabled through Christ's sacrifice. And then we'll see what is the evidence, a result of a humble heart. And after those two big questions, what is pride and what is humility, we'll move on to just two two short um, subjects. Uh, one is uh, a practical, so to speak, application of how do we maintain A humble posture. And the other one we'll look at is the rewards and joys of a humble heart. So let's jump into it. It's not our first nature to be humble, right? We seek praise and and acknowledgement for our hard work and good deeds all the time. And furthermore, much of the culture we live in today really encourages us to be prideful. And I'm not talking about pride with satisfaction in a job well done, in a well-earned A or uh, um, in, a, in a pride in one's child who has come home with an award from kindergarten. Rather, I'm talking about pride that encourages us to seek glory from those around us and to put ourselves in the center of the universe. It's this idea of me, right? I am the center. It's all about me. I deserve a chance to be great. And we put ourselves in the center of everything. So I played basketball um, from when I was in fifth grade Up until a couple of years in high school Now if you saw me play basketball Now you'd probably think I was lying But I honestly did play at one point I may not be that great now But I did play And I remember this one guy Who we always played with Uh, You knew that if he got the ball There was no chance you are getting it back There was only a double threat position for this guy He would either dribble to the basket Or shoot Uh, Passing was not an option for him And why he wanted the glory for himself And in this case, the the really frustrating thing was that he actually was the go-to guy when we needed him. So it only fueled his ego even more, though. And at the end of the day, he always made it about himself. His success, his glory. And we can immediately think of areas in our own lives where we behave the same way. Uh, When I was at college, uh, many of us aspired to what we refer to as uh, upfront ministry or, or ministry in the public's eye. Uh, to be on the worship team, speaker, some type of title on campus of leadership. And and honestly, these positions were desirable to us because we would receive immediate recognition and praise from our peers. And there are positions in in the local church that we aspire to for the same reasons. Uh, The point being, humility is not our first nature. Pride is. So what is pride? To answer that, we're going to look back prior to Adam and Eve to see where pride comes from. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they record the downfall of two kings who exemplify esteeming oneself above God. And the language here can reference the rebellion and fall of Satan himself, who was, we know he was created an angel and then became prideful and fell. He wanted to set himself above God. And as a result, him and the other angels who followed him were cast out of heaven, right? As enemies of God. And what happened? They came to our forefathers, Adam and Eve, and they tempted them. You don't need God. You can be like God. And wanting to be like God and glorified as God, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commandment. Everything that was good and true and holy was shattered and man's heart was corrupt and filled with pride. Because of their proud hearts, God removes them from the garden and we see that pride came from man's desire to make much of himself. C.J. Mahaney is a pastor and a writer and he wrote a very well-respected book on humility. In it, he says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Simply put, pride is an idol of self. It can occur when we think so highly of ourselves that we're above others and have no need for God. But it can also occur when we think so lowly of ourselves. It, it, we say we wallow in our sinful in our sinful nature. We're, we say we're so messed up and we focus on ourselves and we're prideful. We have elevated ourselves above God's truth by saying that we're so horribly bad that he can't save us and we... We refuse to receive the grace he has to offer. We say the cross is not enough. And, and so whether you have this really extreme high view of yourself or an extremely low view of ourselves at times, both seek to put attention on themselves and disregard what God's word says about our identity. And what happens as a result of pride? Well, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So the result of pride is destruction and a fall. And we see this quite literally for Adam and Eve, right? Literally, pride went before the fall for them. In the fall, man's identity is lost. Uh, No longer are they reflecting the image of God clearly. Uh, They've lost the perfect relationship they once had between each other and God. And now their relationships are, are filled with conflict. And the meaning of life is lost. The scriptures show us that the result of pride is destruction, and not just for Adam and Eve. Think of how pride has has affected a Christian business owner I knew uh, for a time when I was at college. He worked diligently to get his business up and running. He often sacrificed aspects of his life, time, relationships, financial decisions. And he was finally able to create new departments and place trusted employees over them. Uh, and during this, he, he's thankful to, to God for his success. However, not far down the road, pride really begins to creep into his heart and life. Uh, he loses his thankful independent dependent attitude toward God, and he's made himself the center of his world. And soon his, his employees begin to feel that he's unapproachable. Uh, they stop giving advice. It, it's always cast aside. They're ignored. Morale falls in the company. He turned away from God, Lost his way of life and has alienated himself from others. Pride destroys. James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The destruction is a result of pride because pride sets us in opposition to God. And, and I'll think about that for a minute that there's an attitude and way of life that we can have that God actually opposes. Uh, the God that, uh, that told the planets where to orbit, who placed and lit the stars, who created each galaxy, earth and heaven and everything below it, that this God would actually oppose the proud. Pride is a result of pitting ourselves against God and alienating ourselves from others. It results in a posture that cannot receive grace. It cannot receive conviction or correction. Uh, Proud hearts have a posture of of closed hands and an attitude that says they're self-sufficient. That they will not take anything God has nor man has to offer because they have no need for it. Uh, They are their own counsel. And they elevate themselves above God and above others, and God will knock them down a peg. So now, at this point, there's two ways in in which you can be reacting in your heart and, and, and in your mind. You're either saying, Okay, I understand what, what pride is, and I see it in my life, so, so how do I deal with it? What do I do? And, and that's a great question, which we will address in a little bit. And if that's not you, you have to be saying, okay, I understand what you're saying pride is, but I don't really see a ton of it in my life. And, and while at times some struggle more than others with pride, we all have pride in our lives. And the reason you're having a hard time seeing it is not because it's not there. But rather, we're blind to it. All of us can be blind to pride at times. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Uh, plain and simple, those who are blinded to pride are stubborn. Uh, rather than take responsibility for their wrong actions, one who is stubborn turns to self-justification. We try and dodge conviction or sidestep correction, too afraid that our ego may take a hit. And how do we identify, then, these areas that we're blind to? How how do we expose them? How how do we know if we are blind? Well, one of the first ways is to to see is, do we deflect blame? We see this with Adam, who blamed Eve, and then Eve, who blamed the serpent, right? Uh, They, like ourselves, they wanted to appear righteous, and they resisted exposure, We convince ourselves and try and convince others that we were manipulated into making a a poor decision. And one way we see this can be manifested often in our lives is how we explain a rocky financial situation. We say things like, uh, it's not my fault that I'm in thousands of dollars of credit card debt, or, or, or it's not my fault that I spend as much as I do. We'll say, it's my parents. They didn't teach me good financial wisdom. Or or my spouse, they expect to live a certain type of lifestyle, so I need to spend. By doing this, we're actually expressing a really low view of those around us. We're expressing that we would never do such a thing, but that these other people would. We elevate ourselves over others, and we embrace pride. Another way uh, to test ourselves to see if we're blind to our pride is to ask ourselves if we're believing a false reality. And let's go back to our example of, of personal finances. We're spending money we don't have, perhaps living on credit, not knowing that whether or not we're going to make it through the month. right? And, but we're believing that it's okay and everything's fine. Uh, telling ourselves, we'll, we'll pay it off later, or everyone's doing it. right? It must be fine. I'll be okay. Completely ignoring the reality that we're really living a lie. Rather than admit our faults and acknowledge that we need help, we believe everything is going great. And we might even try and show off to others how great it's going. We buy new cars or some new clothes or or get some new entertainment. We're too arrogant to admit we have a problem and change our behavior or seek help. And we believe a lie as we live in pride. And and the last way I want to consider to see if we're blind to our pride is to see how we react to someone who expose, exposes our faults. Uh, a trusted friend might confront you for your spending habits or the way you manage your money. And rather than listen and consider what they have to say and, and that they're speaking in love, we react aggressive in anger. And in anger, uh, your pride causes you to resist truth and, and push your friend away. Uh, and we turn others' accusations on themselves, pointing out their defaults rather than focusing on ours that was brought to our attention. And in doing so, we're expressing that really we have a a sense that we're more righteous than others. Proverbs 30.12 refers uh, to those types as, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. In the Bible, in in the New Testament, we see these are the Pharisees, right? The self-righteous ones. They believe that they are further along the path of righteousness than those around them, And they look down on others and esteem themselves very high. Uh, The spiritual, prideful, self-righteous person is quick to point out others' sin rather than see their own heart for what it truly is, proud. And, And so if we recognize that, yes, there are areas in our lives that we've been turning a blind eye to, how do we then take the blinders off? Well, we first come to the Lord in prayer, right? Asking Him to show us where pride is hidden in our lives, And we can even ask others to see, have they seen our words or actions that we have been missing, that that we're prideful in certain ways. Secondly, when pride is revealed to us, we have to honestly reflect on it. Don't react right away, but consider what someone has said or what the Spirit has laid on your heart. Perhaps even for a couple of hours, a couple of days, just a, a period of time where you can honestly assess yourselves. And third step for removing the blinders is to take responsibility for your pride and the destruction it has caused. Own up to it. it. It's somewhat cliche, but really swallow your pot, swallow your pride. This means that you may have to admit you're wrong, and in doing so, though, the Spirit comes in and humbles you in the process. And perhaps some of us may have to consider this last point that we may need to seek outside help to restore the damage that our blind pride has caused. We may need to take a class on personal finances or meet with an advisor to help get us stable again. Establish some accountability in your finances. Or maybe it's not finances. It could be a marital situation or anything. And there's no shame in getting help. Right? I know that there have been times in my life where I've been struggling, and and I know I need help, but I don't go and seek it out right away. It's difficult to seek out help. I needed to admit I needed counsel, admit I couldn't fix it on my own. And did my ego take a hit? Yes, it absolutely did. But through the process, I saw how the Spirit worked in me to humble me, and then restoration occurred after. So we've now answered the big question, what is pride? Pride. That pride came from our forefathers, that as they and now we seek self-glorification above God. We've understood the result, pitting ourselves against God, which leads to destruction. And we've seen at times that pride can be blinding and that we need to take the blinders off. And God in his love and mercy has given us warnings of truth or of warnings of pride and truth to deal with it. He's exposed pride as our greatest enemy and also shown us that humility is our greatest friend. And so now I want to turn our attention there, turn our attention to humility. And what is it? Well, first, we have to understand humility is not the same as humiliation. All right? Humility does not mean you will be humiliated. Humility does not mean that one always has to be quiet or or walked all over or always ready to kind of surrender. Rather humility is being confident in one's strengths and in one's weaknesses. Pastor Ed has explained humility before as looking at one's gifts and successes without pride and looking at one's shortcomings and failures without shame. When we are gifted and successful, we don't grapple for praise. Our skill and success does not identify who we are. Rather we're content knowing that God gifted us, and we want to bring attention to him. And when we fail and feel as though we are as bad off as could be, we don't wallow in the shame, believing we're so unworthy that we won't receive God's love and grace that he has to offer. Rather, humility understands that we are sinful people who have received Christ's goodness, love, and grace in exchange for our sinfulness. Our identity is found in who Christ has made us. We assess ourselves in light of who God is. And this begins with a sense of subordination to God in Christ. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord spoken here, it's not a fear of a sense of terror, but a fear of reverence and consider a lord of a manor. alright he has full control of the people uh, full control of the land he owns the land owns the houses owns the shops and at time he even has the authority to take the sword to someone in punishment so to stand in his presence calls for great reverence and respect and this is true for the ultimate lord Christ the fear of the lord should cause us not, not to run away from him but rather to run to him. And when we have this high view of of who God is and understand who we are in light of his holiness, we'll not seek our praise in the accomplishments, and nor will we look to the shame in our failures. And there's no room in us for spiritual pride when we have a subordination to him. Rather, we're most suspicious of our own heart, knowing really that there are faults within that make the deficiencies we see in others minute. The humble one understands himself in light of who God is and wants to be more like Jesus. And if this is truly our desire, to be more like Christ, then what must our posture be? Well, we have to have open hands compared to the closed-handed person, acknowledging that we are dependent on him and are teachable. We can't grow in wisdom and grow in knowledge unless we are first teachable. And we can't be teachable unless we are first humble. You can't teach a prideful person anything. They believe they already know it, right? This is what we refer to as the know-it-alls, right? Those who who feed their self-esteem by showing off, wanting others to see how well-read they are and, and how smart they are. And we love being around these people, right? Just love it. No, right? It's, it's hard to be around them. It's hard to converse with them. They believe they are the expert on everything. But the humble person is teachable. He acknowledges that, yes, while, while his knowledge on a few subjects may indeed be deep, he remembers that he, or that the knowledge he has is nothing in comparison to the knowledge accessible in our world, and that it's really just a grain of salt compared to the knowledge of God, A humble person has the posture of one who is teachable, dependent on God. And yet true humility can only be enabled through us, or I'm sorry, in us, through Christ and the Spirit's empowerment that he gives. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did he serve us? He served you and I by humbling himself and going to the cross and giving his life as a ransom in exchange for our slavery and our bondage. And the idea of ransom, it may not be as common to us, maybe we might hear it in some type of, you know, kidnapping movie type of thing, but this was a common idea to uh, the Jewish, Roman, and Greek culture. It was used as a reference for a price that was needed to pay to set a prisoner of war free, or to set a slave free. And Jesus here refers to himself as the ransom for us. Us, the slaves, captive to our own wickedness and sin. And how would he pay this ransom for our freedom? Well, he lived a perfect life and died a horrific, unjust death for those who were really against him. He paid the punishment for us And would then rise from the dead, sealing his victory over sin and death. As Martin Luther calls it, the great exchange took place. He exchanged our sin, our disobedience, for his righteousness, his obedience. His humility was exchanged for our pride. And we're no longer trapped by our pride that does not allow us to enjoy God, nor does it allow us to enjoy being around others. Rather, the cross, it shows us that... We cannot boast in our accomplishments, nor can we say we're too unworthy to receive him. His sacrifice alone enables us to experience humility. And consider James and John, some of the disciples. Before Jesus' statement of servanthood in Mark, there's an interaction between Jesus and some of his disciples, primarily James and John. They asked Jesus to set them up in seats of honor, and, and they want to be placed next to him. As they're going to Jerusalem, they suspect that Jesus is heading there to establish his kingdom in a political sense, and they seek a prominent place in it. They believe they're the greatest. They say, let us sit at your right hand, let us sit at your left hand. They want the power, the respect, and the title. And as for the others, they're not off the hook, and verse 41 records them as being indignant at James and John. They too are exposed for their own, seeking their own self-glory. They're all prideful there. But consider what happens after the cross, after they've been forgiven for their pride and have been ransomed. They turn from their self-glorification to men who are humble servants, who serve others with the gospel for the glory of God. James was the first apostle to be martyred. This once egocentric man humbly lays down his life for Jesus. And as for his brother John, it's clear from his writings that he understood Jesus' teaching on servanthood. He writes, By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And what changed in James and John from men seeking self-glorification to men who were humble servants laying down their lives? Jesus had died a ransom. His sacrifice is not just an example that spurred them on to be humble, but it was also the means for which they would be able to pursue humble service. Christ's work has enabled us to be humble as we are empowered through the Spirit. And, and so we've seen that humility is, is not taking pride in our success or shame in our failures. We've seen it begins with the fear of the Lord, a sense of subordination to Him. We see that to be humble means we must have a posture of one who is teachable. And we know that humility is only enabled through Christ's sacrifice, that we're no longer trapped in our pride, but free and capable of humility. So then, what is the result of it? What is the evidence of one who who is living this out? True humility is evident by our service to others. So Jesus was the most humble person who ever lived. So what did this look like for him? how did perfect humility manifest itself in Christ? Service. As I read before in Mark, Jesus says he has come not to be served, but to serve. The cross is the ultimate act of service that's displayed in his life. But I want to look at another example of how Jesus works this out, of how he shows true humility, of true service, is a result of a humble heart. John 13 records an account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Uh, Foot washing was common in the ancient Near Eastern culture, but servants were the ones who would typically do it. And it was less than a desirable job. In Jesus' day, foot washing, it was done out of a necessity, right? The roads, they're they're riddled with uh, human and animal waste. There's garbage. There's mud all over the place. Their shoes are loose sandals. They're not fully covered. And their feet got very filthy because of it, Right? And then, though, think of the God-man getting down on the floor to wash the feet of his disciples, of him placing himself in a position to serve those who actually are below him, and doing it all with love. What a display of humility. And then consider Peter's response, though. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you will never wash my feet. His initial response here is one of pride. He calls Jesus Lord and therefore shows that he understands that Jesus is good and righteous, but he believes he is so unworthy and he will not let himself receive the love and service of Christ. Peter is so focused on himself and has such a low view of himself that he's missing God's grace and goodness here. And this is often, often the case with us. We believe that as we are, we cannot come to Jesus to wash our feet to forgive us. So what do we do? We try and clean our own feet first, right? Maybe there's an area in your life that you've been struggling with over and over again. We know what the issue is, know it's harmful, and we try not to give in. Uh, We'll we'll white-knuckle it and and we'll try to put all the accountability in place and we'll go through drastic measures to ensure that we can clean ourselves up. If the issue is eating for, for comfort, then we limit ourselves to only one snack a day if the issue is pornography then you get software on your computer if the issue is time management you lay out a detailed schedule and you stick to it yet with all our efforts do we not still fail and give in to temptation and then we believe we are so bad that we cannot approach the throne of grace and why what's the issue Well, it's to focus on our own efforts. We put a lot of effort and boundaries into our life trying to fix ourselves because we feel too shameful, as Peter was, to allow Jesus to wash us. We're prideful. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be wise about um, accountability or, or setting up structure in your life to keep you accountable. But our focus should not be on our shame and it should not be on our efforts to get out of that shame. Rather, the focus is on the cross and what Christ has done there. His his nature of being gracious and loving. And realizing that he washes clean the feet of those who are really, really messed up. Who have really, really filthy feet. We look to him. Jesus' life of humble service, like I've said, not only enables us to be humble, but also shows us a humble service is a result of true humility our christ-like service then exists to draw attention to the source of our humility the source that jesus humble obedience to the father that he he was humble all the way up to death on a cross and so i ask you where are you serving in the church are you serving in the church are you serving your community and if you're not serving why we can be blind and feel we are, we're too good. We're too good to serve. But that's exactly why we should serve. We put ourselves in a place expecting the Spirit to meet us and to work in our lives. And serving also keeps our, our spiritual pride in check. When the believer who has had faith in Jesus for 20 years and the believer who has faith in Jesus for only a year are both standing at the door handing out a guide page, or, or both down in the kids uh, watching the infants. How can either one of them say that one is better than the other or less than the other? Humility is seen in the wealthy businessman who volunteers his weekend time to clean the feeding center in the city. It's the young mother who tirelessly works at home to care for her husband and her children. Or it's the elderly couple who, though despite health problems, continue to serve as a small group leader. A life of humility is evident in a life of service. But we must be careful at this point. Uh, a life of service alone does not make one humble. Right? We can't, we can't say, oh, look at my list of credentials. Look at how much I've accomplished along the path of humility. Look at all my service. I must be humble. No, that's all about you, what you've done. What you've accomplished there is actually pride. Rather, what we do is we cultivate a posture of humility, a posture that then allows the spirit to come in and to really disciple us and transform our hearts. So I'd like to share just four ways, four quick ways that we can maintain such a posture. And some of these are taken from C.J. Mahaney's book on humility. The first one is consider sleep. Sleep represents our body's need for rest, uh, that we have mortal bodies that weaken as the day goes on, and we are dependent on sleep. And as you lay your heads on your pillow, each night, consider the gift of sleep, the fact that work has ceased and that we need rest. It's a great gift, but it's also a humbling one. A second way to maintain a posture of humility is laughter. In one sense, laughter in general. A proud person cannot give himself over to laughter. He feels that really to let himself go would be a disgrace and it's unfitting for his pompous proper self and, and and there's a kind of humor that is probably the most important to laugh at yourself sometimes funny embarrassing things happen because of you and it's okay to laugh at yourself and, and some of you have really great material i've seen it i'm sure your spouse can attest to that it's okay to laugh at yourself it's good uh, laughter is a gift from God and it can also h- help in our ongoing struggle against pride third let's look at Proverbs thirteen thirteen. it says whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded use your commute to work uh, listen to scripture reading a sermon a book to help you study the nature of God or, or the nature of man and as one draws closer to God, we not only see His glory and His holiness more, but we also see the filth in our own lives. Our pride is exposed, and we're reminded of our reliance on grace. And one last way uh, to maintain this posture is recorded in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So this is not done easily, right? No, no one wants to openly expose their wrongdoings to another person, and I get that. Yet with confession, is there not such a sense of freedom, of not having to struggle of your on our own, of allowing someone else to, to speak into our lives, to give us wisdom, to, to point us to Jesus more clearly? But we're so prideful at times, caring more about our appearance than we do about our spiritual health and relationship to God. Here at Terra Nova, though, there's a great place to cultivate this type of posture, this posture of openness with people. And it takes place in our small groups, which we call tribes. Tribe is a place where you can get together and get to know some people from the larger community here at a more personal level, a place that's safe to share struggles and find support, and at times find correction if need be. It's a place that we can practice true humility. Now, these are just a few ways in which we can place ourselves in a posture of humility, uh, trusting that the Spirit will then teach us and and transform our hearts. And there's other ways. And the rewards are quite joyous. Uh, We've seen the warnings of, of prideful hearts that we seek to place ourselves above God and then result in destruction. And it causes us an opposition against him, right? Uh, but what of the rewards and joy of humility? Proverbs three thirty four says Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Isaiah sixty six two says This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Humility draws the eye of an infinitely gracious God. His eye upon you means His grace upon you. When one lives in the grace of God, do we not experience a deep inward joy, right? Jonathan Edwards, who is said to be the greatest preacher of the 18th century, he says, the pleasures of humility are really the most refined, inward, and exquisite delights in the world. God does not help those who help themselves as as Benjamin Franklin has said but rather gives favor to her humble heart and we receive honor when we are humble proverbs 29:23 says one's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor and this is seen in our daily lives uh, when those who are around are puffed up and boisterous do we not want to cut them down just a little bit uh, but those who who are successful and, and have have accomplished stuff without any recognition for praise, do we not want to honor them? The star athlete who, at the end of the game, during a post-game interview, says that it was really a team effort, right? He he thanks his coach and he thanks his teammates. The announcers will often say, what a class act, or he's a class act. In other words, he wasn't haughty and arrogant. And we want this player to succeed. We honor him. We enjoy his success with him. Or the person in the church, who rather than seeks a public position out of a desire to be noticed, realizes that maybe he's more equipped to serve somewhere else. And he does so enjoy. Or the person who who does serve up front, but yet does not seek praise or recognition, we honor them. We admire them because they are humble and would rather see a local church reach people for Jesus than be a part of a a church that does a mediocre job with them at the center of focus. We need to acknowledge that we are prideful beings who have not obtained humility yet, but are rather pursuing it through the Spirit's empowerment. The band is going to come forward at this point, and, and during their first two songs... Uh, we'll have a time to take communion. There'll be someone, some people down here holding the matzah and the wine or the juice. And if you believe that Jesus' death ha- has freed you from your bondage, bondage of pride, then please come forward and t- and partake with us. And as you do come forward, honestly assess the areas in your life where you may be prideful. And as you take the matzah and dip it, think of the sacrifice of our humble Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you dip, save yourself. Really, how can I be arrogant in anything when I stand before your cross? Let us close in prayer. Lord, we we thank you for the truth of your word. And though at times it may expose our hearts as sinful and proud, we know that your grace is sufficient and, and we thank you for that. I ask that you... Expose pride in our hearts now, Lord. Reveal it so that we may repent and turn to you for grace. Forgive us for seeking our own praise or believing we are not worthy enough to receive your grace. Help us to maintain a posture of humility in our lives and we ask that the Spirit may work in us to humble us so that others may see
0: your humble nature in us. In Jesus' name we pray,
1: amen.